Hello and welcome to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. We're here on episode 141 and we took a week off last week. Yeah, our minds had to be made mature again. That's right. <laughs> I'm going crazy over here. It's the holiday season. We got a chance to catch up on some other things and listen to some music. I got to listen to some old music for a few days too that I oh, nice. haven't listened to. But I'm wondering, is there any update on the Arato situation, Mike? <laughs> okay, let me remind people of what this is. On the last episode, I had complained that Warner Classics slash Erato didn't answer my email about Diana Damrau's album, My Christmas, which has the texts in the original language of the songs in right. German, and there are no translations. And the CD booklet note says, find the translations to these online. And they did the same thing with the album by the countertenor that we did um, right. a few weeks ago. Or Linsky, that, right. you know, the Italian songs. And they had that one online, you know, so I was able to get that. But the uh, Diana Dammer album does not have the uh, translations online. So I wrote to them about that. And now I've written them four messages. Oh, wow. You know, and still waiting for a reply. And they even have the nerve, the nerve to write on the website, we'll get back to you as soon as possible. Well, I don't think you're working too hard there to get back to me there, Warner Classics slash Erato. They're based in France, by the way. I should write to them in French and see if they reply. It'd be interesting. Yeah. Anyway, listeners, tiring. you can tell Mike <laughs> is not a customer that you want to get on your bad side. You don't want me on your bad side. <laughs> I'll come after you. I want what I'm promised. <laughs> right. Well, let's see. In other news, we heard from our good friend over in the UK, drummer Gaz Hughes. Ah, we heard his uh, previous release, uh, Beboptical Illusion. Yeah, fantastic title. That was earlier this year, actually. That was in episode 103, Beats of Different yeah. Drummers. That was a really fun uh, disc, and he's got a new one that's going to be coming out, and he's sticking with the bebop theme, Nuclear Bebopalypse. <laughs> Did you just say <laughs> Nuclear Bebopalypse? Is that the name of the that's new the album? It, yeah. That's fantastic. Wow. It's going to be out on February 2nd. And we've got a copy of it already that we're going to listen to. And uh, we'll get that in an episode when it comes out, right, for its debut. So that's going to be fun. You know, if he ever decides that drumming isn't for him, he could easily become a copywriter because if he could come up with names like that <laughs> right. on a regular basis, there's, there's a living in that. So <laughs> Let's see. We've also got our Christmas picks made. We did that today. I want to say something about this because I, I started listening to them a little bit. Mm. And we're doing this early this year so that we, you know, we give the listeners more of a chance to hear right. them before Christmas time comes. And then we also get to do two episodes instead of one. It's kind of cr strange to sandwich one episode in between, you know, the Christmas episode and then the uh, best of the year right. episode, which would yeah. come. This year, it's kind of early. It's on Christmas Day. It'll probably come down for right. a lot of people. And we thought that we'd do it early this year. But I got to tell you, listening to these <laughs> albums now. It's yeah. really hard. And it's not, you know, I'm normally listening to Christmas music a little bit by now, but I kind of warm up to it. Mm -hmm. And just to have to do an intense listen so that I could talk about this album on the podcast, it just feels too early for that. Yeah, You know, I don't want to, you know, really go deep into a Christmas album yet, but I guess I'm going to have right. to this week. So well, there you go. It reminds me of all the other things that come with Christmas because, you know, like they say, it's the most expensive time of year. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, if you want to find out those Christmas picks early after this episode gets published in a couple of hours, I'll have that Christmas playlist put together. There's one in jazz that's not going to come out until next Friday, though. So, yeah, that's next week we're doing that right. podcast. It's the Christmas, Christmas episode. episode, December 3rd. Look for it. And I also want to mention that 
We're going to proceed with our plan to go over and visit our friends at the same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. That's AJ and Johnny, who look at several versions of the same jazz standard in each episode. They play little snippets from each version. They discuss the history of the original and the different versions. There's a link to their podcast in the description. And if you stick around to the end of the episode, you can hear their little promo that comes out twice a month. Well, we've had to delay our appearance there a little bit, but it'll probably still be out before the end of the year. Well, at least we hope it will anyway. So looking forward to that as well. You know what they do, I find really hard because they're listening to all of these different versions of the same song. Right. For me personally, that's a, a kind of torture. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why, and here's the reason why, because when I was younger, my mother liked mm -hmm. this one Julio Iglesias song and oh, she no. had a cassette tape of it. And she would play it in the car, like she'd be driving me somewhere, like to baseball practice or whatever. Mm -hmm. And she'd put the song on, and, you know, and it's a cassette tape of the whole album, but she'd only right. play that one song. Really? Which was the first song of the album. So you could just, she kept rewinding it to the beginning mm -hmm. and just replaying it again. So I had to hear it six or seven times between the oh, time wow. I went to the house. It was, it was like an audio Chinese water torture. You know what I mean? It was like dripping right, this right. music into your ear or something. And I was going to go crazy. Not only that, but at the end, as soon as Julio's voice ended on the song, like she didn't let mm -hmm. the, the fade happen or anything right. like that. She would just push the button and it, the tape would rewind and we'd hear the song again from the beginning. It was absolute torture. That's almost <laughs> something you could need therapy for, you know? Yeah, well, I do my therapy by listening to entire albums <laughs> and collecting CDs. I'd probably be a normal person <laughs> if right. it wasn't for that one thing. <laughs> Thanks, Julio. My brother's going to enjoy hearing that story, because right. I think it happened to him, too. Anyway, we promise there's no Julio Iglesias in the program tonight. <laughs> hey, nothing against Julio or his very talented family. I just want to say, I'm sure he's a, he's a fine singer, but I just, it's just that one song, the way it was played for me. <laughs> I mean, it could have been anything, really. It could have been right. my favorite piece of music. If it was just the same three minutes were heard again and again and again, I would just go crazy. Yeah. Anyway, we've got a lot of variety in the classical program, and I've got a really killer swinging and, well, just fun all-around jazz program coming up in the second half, so make sure you stay around for that. I want to remind everyone in the episode description, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we'll discuss. And at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on the purple fuzzy-hearted Deezer. <laughs> I'm still not used to this. I don't like the heart. Yeah. You know, it's a little too cute. <laughs> They bring us CD-quality streaming music from France. You can also listen to the podcast there if you want to get all of the music and the podcast in one place. Now, if you don't see the full description or recording list and links are not clear or easy to follow on your app, please check us out on our host site. That's Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, where everything is easy to follow. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe. Tell a music-loving friend, and if you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a short review, that helps us get listed in the music category recommendations, another way we can get new listeners. Come over and follow us on Facebook as well. We've got a page there. You can get extra info about new releases and other events during the week. Leave a message or comment. If you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And as we've been doing, we're going to continue playing music samples so you can get a better idea of what this music sounds like rather than just listening to our descriptions of it. And here's our fair use disclaimer. Music sample clips are for commentary and educational purposes. 
We recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services in the links provided. We also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs or high-quality downloads to support the artists. Indeed. Okay, so are we going to just launch into this? I'm still thinking of Julio. That's the thing. I might be a doctor or a lawyer today if it wasn't for that one Julio Iglesias <laughs> song that I heard a lot of times. It just ruined my brain. <laughs> Again, not because of the song, but because it was... I heard it on repeat. Well, let's take a little Bach to uh, wash that all away. All right. Now, I'm presented with a conundrum right away. This is um, an album by Justin Taylor, the harpsichordist, and it's called Bach, and then there's an ampersand, mm. and then there's the French word for Italy, l'Italie. So I'm guessing that ampersand is pronounced eh, Bach et l'Italie. Right. I guess. It could be and. I always see the ampersand, I think and. Right. But anyway... Taylor himself, by the way, is French-American. I'm not sure how that works, but this is on the Alpha label, let me just mention. One of my favorite labels, I have to say. It's, mm. it's really, um, they've really put out a lot of impressive um, records in the last few years. I, I notice I'm getting more and more of them in my uh, collection. Mm-hmm. All right, now, on a harpsichord album, just like on an organ album, we have to mention the instrument used. They're all very different. And Justin Taylor here is playing the historic harpsichord of the Chateau d'Assas, which is uh, built in 1730. I'm guessing it doesn't have the same strings that it had in 1730. (laughs) But it's it's a very impressive sounding instrument. It's an instrument that can make a lot of different sounds. I was pretty impressed by this. Yeah, I noticed that too, yeah. Yeah, it's a two-manual. So usually when you have those, one of them is kind of like multi-stringed for, you know, higher volume. Right. And then the other one is maybe single-stringed. And sometimes there's like a mute you could put on so that the three strings will only pluck one string. It's, I don't know how this one works. They're all different. They had all these really clever designs for these uh, harpsichords. And the Italy part of this uh, title comes from, uh, like everyone else at the time, Bach fell under the spell of the Italian arts, which they were where this new music was coming from. And it spread all over Italy. Actually, France had its own sort of take on this. Despite Bach's study of the music of his contemporaries from Germany and abroad, he also studied the music of the past, as I guess we do, too. Well, obviously, classical music is a good deal of it is about the past now, or updating the past or whatever. Still, Italian art and artistry had a special place for Bach, and he made highly elaborate transcriptions of Italian works, some of which we're going to hear on this album. He's extremely respectful towards the spirit of his models, yet he adds value to the original by making his work more than a transcription. Yeah, if you know the originals, these are, they're not different, but they are kind of more thickly harmonized, I guess Mm. you could say. Like he would use a new, specially noted ornamentation with a variety of embellishments. And so he gives these works different colors, and the harpsichord already does that. He always adds his own personal touch. Now, whenever you hear a Bach keyboard work, you got to keep in mind, if we're doing period instruments, we'll usually hear them on the harpsichord. But they could have been played on one of a number of keyboard instruments at the time, including the clavichord, which is very quiet. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned that before. We heard um, Andras Schiff's, I think, uh, clavichord Bach album. All right, let's start talking about this album, which has loads of tracks on it. <laughs> it's, got, <laughs> it well, it's got 24. It's not that bad. They're all short. Or most of them are. The first track is really only uh, 37 seconds long. Alessandro Scarlatti, Toccata, and D minor arpeggio, and that's all it is. It's just an arpeggio, really. Toccata means like touch technique, so it's meant to like kind of demonstrate your your technique. It's got some drama in its harmony. It's over pretty quickly. And really, the reason this is here is to set us up for the Bach chromatic fantasy that follows, which it sort of uh, runs into. 
we're into that famous and intricately composed chromatic fantasy with no fugue. We don't hear the fugue on this recording. Taylor plays this with great clarity and attention. I've heard this often played on the piano, and it's not as fast as I've heard pianists play it here. And I think that serves the piece. Let's uh, listen to this opening here. You might recognize this. It's kind of a difficult piece even for the listener because it's so chromatic. But nevertheless, it's a famous one. Here we go. for a place to stop and it just keeps kind of <laughs> traveling no into these new keys there's no no resolve or anything mm. um yeah a lot of uh pretty exciting harmonic excursions in that uh, just little opening uh part of this um movement that's about uh six minutes long so there's a lot of information packed into that little spot there notice also how he's um he's shaping the lines so that when the harmony changes like there's a slight pause he's kind of like setting you up for it so that you're going to hear it mm. when it comes out and the articulation is very very clear i really did like this performance a lot i remember thinking when listening to this on the, his previous album taylor had a real gentleness to the sound he got this kind of almost like twinkle out of the uh instrument he was playing i'm not sure if it was the same one probably wasn't but this piece is coming across as more emphatic in tone mm. Uh, as it goes on, I'm noticing similarities in the opening brief Scarlatti arpeggio, like I'm tying the two together, and that's his intention, surely. So I was kind of intellectually excited by recognizing that. Mm. So that tells me this is um, very thoughtful programming that went into this program. The work unfolds as a three-movement structure at the 2 minute 49 second mark. Well, we actually don't hear the third movement, which would be the fugue. At 2 minutes and 49 seconds, we hear a sort of uh, recitative where a single melodic line declaims as though it's an operatic character. At 4 minutes and 8 seconds, there's a sudden dramatic outburst, but we're still in a sort of uh, recitative here, recitative. At 4 minutes and 53 seconds, i got to get a proper pronunciation for that in English. I just know it in Italian, recitativo. At 4 minutes and 53 seconds, Taylor pulls the rug out with a sudden muted tone. I really enjoy when he does that. I guess playing on the other keyboard manual of the instrument makes that. It's a brief muffling, and then the material is back to a brighter tone. The third section of the structure would be the fugue. We don't get that here. And the fantasy ends, the chromatique fantasy ends with a cadence. All right, next, movements three through five. Johann Sebastian Bach, concerto in D minor. BWV 974 after Concerto for Oboe in D minor by Alessandro Marcello. And this uh, piece, this is a tran one of the transcriptions we talked about at the beginning, uh, starts uh, with an unmarked movement, but in parentheses we have Andante, so it's a slow, unusual slow opening movement. It has an interesting unison opening on um, a stop and start line, which is really unusual for the Baroque era. The accompanying material draws the ear with a solo melody legato and thrown into relief. This works well on the harpsichord, and Taylor maintains solid rhythmic impetus, despite the fact that the material doesn't really assist him in this. <laughs> so this is a really good uh, 
Good playing here. Good uh, interpretation. Let's hear the opening of this. It sounds like a rather complex transcription or arrangement by Bach, and Taylor puts it across well. You could hear this would work better <laughs> with the orchestra, and the, the orchestra mm. could fill in a lot of that space. But he's doing fantastic work here, is Justin Taylor and Bach himself. The second movement is an adagio, and it features repeating chords with the lyrical melody above it. It rather sounds like this may have been the inspiration for the middle movement of Bach's Italian concerto, which we'll hear later. The chords are all quarter notes, as in the Italian concerto, but here they're heavier and more filled out. Taylor, again, makes sure that the rhythm keeps moving. This movement has a bit of uh, urgency to it, despite being an adagio. At the three-minute mark, we're hearing full-toned rolled chords outlining the theme. The piece ends on a rather open-ended cadence, or the movement, I should say. And the uh, third movement is uh, Presto. This takes off like in the Italian concerto, and I get the impression this might be the uh, model for that work. It's got an attractive melody to it, I should mention that Taylor's playing throughout this recording, and so far anyway, is full in tone and emphatic with the material. He's playing with a bright tone and full-on sound, though at 1 minute and 14 seconds of this uh, third movement, track 5, he plays a few bars on the quieter dynamic, or the, maybe the different manual, achieving an echo effect. Really nice. This is a rhythmically driven movement, and it's pretty lively and excitingly played by Taylor. Track 6, Bach, Concerto for Organ in D minor, after Lestro Armonico, Opus 3, number 11, by Antonio Vivaldi. Now, the uh, Estro Armonico are 12 violin concertos, and they're excellent. I recommend you hear them. This is the Largo Espicato movement. It's the middle movement, the slow one, because Vivaldi concertos generally go fast, slow, fast. This starts with a lighter, quieter sound, and there's a bit of a twinkle to the high melody. Again, Taylor keeps the rhythmic impetus playing at a quicker speed than the orchestra would play here. This really has a Bach profile to it. Track 7, Concerto for Organ in C Major. This is Bach again. After the Concerto for Violin in D Major, RV208, Grosso Mogul by Antonio Vivaldi. I'm actually not familiar with this one. This is marked Allegro. It's a cadence. Starts with a long arpeggio, and in the opening seconds we get a switch to the single string manual. Taylor is using the louder multi-string manual for most of these performances. Now, please, I'm assuming that there's a multi-string and a single-string manual. There are two keyboards, but I don't know that this is what they actually do. I haven't seen this instrument in person. It goes to the single-string manual mostly for effect. The instrument he's playing has a strong, vivid attack to it. The recording is close, as all harpsichord recordings are, but comfortable. We're not too close. The thrumming of the arpeggios is really beautiful and hypnotic here. The piece doesn't reach a cadence. Instead, it goes straight into the next piece, which is the Concerto Italiano, or here, Concerto Italien, in F major by Johann Sebastian Bach, which is a very famous work. Now, I want to play the transition between these two movements.
right. So uh, he's sort of connected the two uh, works. Yeah. I really love that. I think it sounds great. So that's the Vivaldi going directly into the Italian concerto by Bach. No interruption, as you heard, and the transition causes a bit of a thrill, I thought. That's why I wanted to sample it. This is played pretty fast, with attention to the articulation of each note and focusing on the shape and form of phrases as opposed to isolating local detail. Everything falls into place well on this instrument. Taylor's articulation is crisp, and the accents come down heavily with impact. Now, the Andante movement, the second movement, track nine, sounds a bit slower than usual, and Taylor is breaking up the last chord in the left hand, adding some texture by doing so. The melody spreads out over the bass beautifully in this performance. The lower bass notes of the harpsichord actually have some impact on the body on this recording. I don't think a real kind of live harpsichord, this is a real harpsichord, but a live harpsichord performance would do that. It registers so fully on the recording. I enjoyed the feeling of continuity that Taylor puts across to the endless melody in this movement. Let's uh, hear a sample of that. The third movement, presto, is a comfortable presto, the exact right speed, perhaps a tad on the slower side to get all the detail to register. Taylor shows very clear articulation again, and the recording picks all of this up perfectly, so hats off to recording producer Hugh Deschaux. Hmm. At 1 minutes and 29 seconds, there's a mute, and again, a rather magical extended section at 2 minutes and 22 seconds on the single strings. The movement comes across genially and warmly, a welcome feeling to this the relatively relaxed tempo works well. Now, I said recording producer. It didn't say who the engineer was in the notes, or at least I didn't see it. So, engineer too. Good work. Anyway, track 11, Benedetto Marcello, Sonata 7, or Sette, pour clavecin, which is the harpsichord. It's a brief piece. It's a daggio. Also arpeggiated like the opening Scarlatti, but less harp-like and more keyboard-like here, with repeating patterns. It's very pretty. And very impressive speed, too, by Taylor. The 12th uh, track is Bach, Concerto in C Major, BWV Anhang 151. The Andante, it acts as a slow movement to the previous Marcello piece in the way it's programmed. Very clever. The quarter note accompaniment recalls the middle movement of the Italian Concerto, so we're getting lots of references to that hmm. Italian Concerto middle movement here, which we just heard. It's melodic but less florid in its melody. In the second minute, it gets ponderous for a minute as a brief cadenza-like passage emerges. Track 13, Johann Sebastian Bach, Preludium Fantasie, BWV 921. This is also highly arpeggiated, like the Marcello, but with more wide-ranging patterns. At the 42-second mark, a rhythmic pattern starts and goes through various chords, and I rather liked that section, so I'm going to sample that.
There's a really nice kind of yeah. <laughs> false cadence in there. It was really a cadence, but just a false sort of harmony before he reached the uh, the tonic again. Great articulation. Uh, Taylor manages to put across uh, this well while playing at high speed. All transitions to new sections are smoothly taken, yet the listener is aware of every one of them. And the piece has an interesting ending, too. I'll let you discover that on your own, listener. Track 14, Concerto in F Major, BWV 978, after Lestro Armonico, Opus 3, number 3, by Vivaldi. And this program is set up so the previous piece sounds like an introduction to this fast movement. And I know this from its Vivaldi setting for violin and Baroque orchestra. It comes across well here with all the energy of the original. Taylor takes a lively place, and again, detail is clearly articulated within the rhythm. Let's uh, hear the opening of this. generating some genuine excitement here. I really yeah. uh, like this. This is a really great album, I have to say. This has all the energy of the original uh, Vivaldi violin and orchestra piece. Lively pace, details clearly articulated within the rhythm, of course. Second movement, Largo. The opening is played by rolled chords, in between which there's a melodic pattern leading to new harmonies. Taylor will subtly change the sound on the harpsichord, briefly applying a muted sound or going to the quieter keyboard to his playing. The uh, third movement, Allegro, on track 16, bursts out of the gate. And I really like the way Taylor briefly mutes the repeat of the opening, which we're not going to get to. But let's uh, hear a sample of that amazing opening. This is great. So we did hear the uh, the muted part. I didn't realize the theme was so short. There are all sorts of interesting details that pop out of the texture in this movement, like the burst of bass range at about the 1 minute and 24 second mark that just as quickly disappears. <laughs> yeah. It's an inspired <laughs> interpretation. It was really... Did I just hear that? It was really great. I really love it when that happens. Track 17, Alessandro Scarlatti, Toccata por Clavecin, or harpsichord, in G minor. Number 6, Marked Largo. This starts out with a burst of dissonance, then a quieter key-exploring line. It's a brief piece, and rather odd. Let's sample this. This is a, something that would uh, make the ladies sit up in their chairs with their giant wigs back in the day. Here we go.
Okay, I don't really know when that resolve is coming <laughs> to get us out of this. You'll have to listen to the uh, recording yourself to hear it. There's a sudden buildup of tension up to the first minute via rapid figuration and some sprayed arpeggios at a minute and 15 seconds. The piece is inconclusive and comes across as an intro to another movement. Okay, so we follow that up with uh, a piece by Vivaldi, Concerto for Flute and C Major, transcribed by Justin Taylor, our um, harpsichordist. So we get this gentle middle movement from Vivaldi's Flute Concerto. It's played on the faster side of Largo, and uh, Taylor's transcription is spacious and has a kind of forward lean to it. At a minute and 34 seconds, a new harmonic section begins with the same repeating bass figure. The movement comes across hypnotically with all of its repeating bass patterns and constantly traveling melody. Since this is something that uh, Taylor himself transcribed, I feel like I should play it just to give him some attention. Here we go. Those repeating bass notes are very insistent. Mm. They really caught my attention. Next we have uh, a piece by Bach, Concerto in B minor, BWV 979, after Concerto in Violin, for Violin in D minor, RV 813 by Antonio Vivaldi, Andante. This has an interesting timbre from the harpsichord, not as bright as it's been on the recording, and this piece consists of repeating figuration through various chords and keys. Let's uh, sample this too. Yeah, I don't want to play too much of that because it's only 59 seconds long. <laughs> we'll just be right into the next thing. Okay. Track 20, Johann Sebastian Toccata in E minor, BWV 914. This work has in outline the three movements of an Italian concerto. A toccata begins the work, then an allegro follows, and a polyphonic fugato of intensely serious character. Please, a fugato is like a fugue. It starts like a fugue, but it doesn't follow the strict rules of a fugue. It's polyphonic, which means there are different melodic voices that are equally important, that are all being played at the same time. Then there's an adagio that seems to be a free improvisation. The final movement, in quotation marks, is a three-part fugue whose subject is based on thematic material from the introduction. This starts ponderously with heavily accented melodic lines, as though in some sort of peaked mood, meaning kind of annoyed. Okay. <laughs> At the one-minute mark, a new section starts, more polyphonic and lighter and prettier. At 3 minutes and 22 seconds, the tempo and dynamics suddenly pick up, and we get a brief improvised sounding section, followed by a change of timbre at around the 3 minute and 40 second mark to a quieter sound. The bright sound is back at 4 minutes and 15 seconds as some tension is unraveled. At 4 minutes and 45 seconds, there's a fast polyphonic section that's pretty exciting in Taylor's hands. He manages to get good energy into his rapid passages and is rock steady in tempo. This piece comes to a satisfying ending. Tracks 21 through 23, Johann Sebastian Bach, Concerto in D Major, BWV 972, after Lestro Armonico, Opus 
three number nine by Antonio Vivaldi. You know, Bach uh, said a lot of um, pieces from that set, Vivaldi's Opus Three. Track 21, uh, Movement One, Allegro. Like the previous Estro Armonico transcription we heard, this comes across well in transcription for the harpsichord. Of course it did because Bach's doing it. Taylor again applies steady tempo that gives the work fantastic forward momentum, or as the French would say, elan. The, t- <laughs> the second movement is a larghetto. Rolled quarter note chords outline the chord progression, which goes into an odd minor mode at about the 22nd mark. The theme starts at about the 32nd mark, and hearing this on the harpsichord makes the oddness of some of the sudden harmonic moves into minor really jump out. You could kind of miss them in the, um, just because of all the strings in the um, Vivaldi orchestral piece. Here, there, <laughs> you really, you really hear them. And then partly that's uh, Justin Taylor's playing too, and his pacing and his articulation. Track 23 is the third movement, Allegro. This has a light opening, and here Taylor uses like a music box-like tone on the harpsichord to lend it a gentle character. After the brief opening, full harmony bursts out of the instrument and speakers. Let's hear that music box-like opening. It's very pretty. Yeah, this doesn't come across this way in Vivaldi's original. It's a little <laughs> a little different there. Wow. The approach here differentiates from the original Vivaldi, the orchestra Vivaldi version. This sounds like a harpsichord work here, really. And again, some of the odder harmonies at 1 minute 23 seconds, for example, register strongly. And finally, we arrive at track 24, Bach, Concerto in G Major, BWV 973, after Concerto for Violin in G Major by Antonio Vivaldi. We're hearing a lot of Vivaldi's music here transcribed. Um, This is the Largo middle movement. It's a brief, gentle ending to the album, played with a lighter tone on the harpsichord, so the single strings. I like the subtle but noticeable change of timbre at a minute and 23 seconds in the bass, and uh, this track sends us off with a gentle goodbye. Until next time, Justin Taylor. Anyway. This is an interesting and cleverly programmed recital, like all that we've heard from Justin Taylor, really, on recordings. I like the way Taylor managed to find the Scarlatti arpeggio piece to match Bach's chromatic fantasy, and the Marcello work in Vivaldi organ concerto to highlight inspirations for the Italian concerto. After the Italian concerto, the program starts to feel more exploratory and experimental, featuring many works with odd harmonic profiles, for the Baroque era, that is, that kept me rather surprised. I'm thinking of the Alessandro Scarlatti Toccata here. And the programming only enhances the adventure. It kept me fascinated throughout. It's really not your average Bach harpsichord recording. Uh, For one, it features a lot of transcriptions, but it sheds light for listeners on Bach and his influences, and the playing keeps the listener engaged. It's a real programming discovery. I'm not giving Taylor enough credit for making this all work. He does a lot to bring this program alive. It's intriguing, and if you like Bach or harpsichord playing in general, this really is a must-hear. Yeah, as you mentioned, the programming is very interesting, and the segues and tying things together that he does really surprises you. Fabulous playing, as usual, from Taylor. He has so much energy that he makes Bach sound really fresh all the time. 
there are also impressive speedy passages, but I also found some really interesting kind of navigation and special emphasis on interesting harmonies, and he makes them stand out in places so you really notice you know, some of the oddities and interesting points there. It's a lot to listen to in one setting. You might want to break it up just so you focus on all the interesting things and don't uh, miss anything from getting too much harpsichord all right. at one time. But I have to say, though, he does make it interesting. You could listen to it all the way through. but you I know, did, yeah, and, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, breaking up would be fine too. It's, it's just compelling all the way through. He, it's a great program. Okay, so our second uh, classical recording of the night is called El Bohemio. And this is by a guitarist, uh, Thibault Garcia, a guitarist who really caught my ear. We've heard a few. We might have heard one recording by him so far, but mm, I've I heard so. others as well. And um, this is on the Errato label. <laughs> good thing there's no lyrics on here. Yeah, yeah good thing there's no lyrics because we probably <laughs> wouldn't have them <laughs> posted on their website. All right. Anyway, the Bohemio of the title is the Paraguayan composer Augustin Barrios. All right. Now, Barrios, for me, goes back to my 20s when um, John Williams, the famous Australian uh guitarist not the guy who wrote star wars <laughs> that's, a, that's a different john williams all right the australian guitarist john williams uh, made a recording of barrios's um guitar music called um the great paraguayan it was called that in england and then in america it was called um from the jungles of paraguay <laughs> oh. why they changed the title barrios's music he lived from 1885 to 1944 you wouldn't know that from listening to his music because he was kind of lived in his own sort of harmonic world mm. uh, which is very romantic he is to the guitar what chopin and beethoven are to the piano in other words his music is essential for classical guitar players uh, yet we haven't had a recording of his music for some time um, so i'm happy to see this new release people have played certain pieces of him and in fact just to give you a little spoiler alert here uh, sean shiba has uh, a new album coming out which features some of um, Barrios' right. music, but it's a mixed program. This Thibaut Garcia album is all Barrios. His music often appears as part of miscellaneous guitar music albums. His music is a mix of South American popular music inspired by the jungles of Paraguay and the romanticism of Chopin and Schumann, who were composers he idolized. Hmm. Uh, the album cover shows a photo of uh, Thibaut Garcia looking headlong into the camera, full on, and holding a red feather with some sort of ring attachment that I guess makes it wearable. I guess it refers to the Guarani people, indigenous to Paraguay, that Barrios associated himself with. Barrios' compositions can be divided into three categories, folkloric, so for the uh, Guarani people or really any other Paraguayan native music, imitative, which would mean imitative of his favorite composers like Chopin, Beethoven, and religious. Barrios was musically out of tune with his times. He wrote romantic music when the period had passed, though I would claim his interest in folkloric music would put him in line with his period because mm. people like Bartok and Vaughn Williams were collecting folk music at the time he was alive, too. But according to the guitarist Benjamin Verdery, I just happened to find his site when doing a search trying to find out some information about Barrios. Barrios's music comes across as honest since he wrote the music he heard in his head and heart. 
Honesty is a quality that will make any style of music popular with audiences. You know, I think about um, a few weeks ago when we were talking about that composer who he wrote a romantic piece trying to get back at the, his uh, composition teachers oh, right. who forced him to write <laughs> like 12-tone music, right? right? People just didn't want to do that, you know? It's not the reason you get into music, although a lot of people don't anyway. Some did. Anyway, let's listen to this highly romantic uh, music. The first piece, Un Sueño en la Floresta, which means a dream in the forest. Thibaut Garcia has a good feel for the expression of this music, leaving a lot of space for the listener to contemplate what he's heard. Let's uh, just hear the opening of this and how this album starts. Pretty and those yeah, stretched stuff. out chords, yeah, very romantic style. That's as much Thibaut Garcia's playing or his interpretation of this music as it is what um, Barrios wrote. Uh, he uses a gentle touch more so than John Williams, who's really the guitarist who's playing. I have in my ears. I mean, that album made such a big kind of it engraved itself in my brain somehow. So I'm always kind of hearing John Williams when I'm listening to other guitarists right. play this. This does sound different though. At a minute and 17 seconds, we get some of Barrios's famous repeated notes. I should say, Thibaut Garcia really draws out the romantic element or the mm. style of Barrios's music in a way that John Williams really doesn't as much. But Williams still manages to put it across, of course. The famous repeated notes we hear from Barrios, um, which are always very impressive to hear on the guitar, we'll hear some of those later. Thibaut Garcia shows a fantastically smooth technique. The articulation comes through clearly on the recording. He achieves the sensitivity required to put this across. I'll have an example of this in a later track. At the 3 minutes 57 second mark, we get a new variation uh, featuring these swooping pull-offs in the melody. It's intriguing, and I loved how the technique sounded here. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you a rare second sample from the same track. Here we go. That sound is so good. The repeated note melody comes back, and this is a pretty long track. And you notice its length, I have to say. It's not that it overstates its welcome. It's all very attractive. Rather, you get lost in it, then come out of it and ask yourself, is this still the same piece? It's pretty eventful for a piece at a relatively slow tempo. Anyway, the second track, um, Air de Zamba. So this would be a folkloric piece, a dance-like rhythm to it that's outlined along with the chord progression at the beginning. It's fairly brief. It's a song-like melody and attractive throughout its song-like length. The third movement, Mazurka Appassionata. This would be an imitative work. A mazurka is a Polish dance, and these are associated heavily with Chopin, who, of course, Berrios idolized. Mm. 
It's got a noticeable rhythm, but one very unlike the previous piece. Well, it's not South American. and has a bit of a rubato applied to it by Thibaut Garcia that we hear in piano playing of Chopin's works. The piece has a B section that's more melodic, as in a Chopin work, and it's a very attractive song-like melody attached to the rhythm here. I have to say that, again, this sounds pretty long, and I'm wondering if it's Thibaut Garcia's pacing that's making me think that. It sounds fantastic, though, and is right in character. Perhaps it's just the wealth of local detail that Thibaut Garcia is pulling out that's making me wonder about this. It's got a lot of smaller sections inside the basic ABA structure. It's a very sensitive, romantic performance. Track 4, uh, Chopin's uh, 24 Preludes, Opus 28, number 20 in C minor, arranged by Barrios. This is a Chopin piece, hmm. and this is rather an unusual choice for Barrios to arranged for the guitar because it features block chords. These aren't strummed yeah, chords. That. Yeah, it's got block chords all the way through. This is the one, if if you're our age, you might remember Barry Manilow's song, Could It Be Magic? And <laughs> this was used as the intro to that song. <laughs> one of the many sins that 70s pop music committed <laughs> against classical music, the the worst ever being the disco version of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, titled <laughs> A Fifth of Beethoven, which was in the movie Saturday Night Fever. Remember that right, one? I do. Oh, man. The, the 70s. Oh, boy. St we're still recovering. Anyway, here uh, Thibaut Garcia varies his touch and way with the chords, rolling the opening chords and plucking them as block chords as on the piano toward the end. Track 5, Una Lismonita por el Amor de Dios. This is a religious work with those repeating notes playing the melody. Now, I promised you we'd hear some repeating notes, and this is a piece that I really love by Barrio, so let's sample this one. for a bit and uh really beautiful playing mm. there too imagine um bringing a guitar to the beach and you know just pulling that out you'd have a crowd around <laughs> you in like a matter of seconds in this uh track uh Thibaut garcia really is lingering over the details of these works this is having a lot of romantic juice squeezed out of it it's a bit on the slow melting side but no less attractive for that I felt that a little more speed would have put the slow-moving melody, because of the repeated notes, more in the forefront. But I mean, this is really hard to do. Mm. John Williams did it, though, but I shouldn't compare him to anyone. He's really... He has his own stature. Track 6, Maxix. This is a folkloric dance piece. It sounds like a popular music in its rhythm. It's playful, and Thibaut Garcia plays this rather straight, pulling out the melody and putting it up front amidst all of the rhythmic detail. The melody moves into the bass toward the end of the first minute, and I haven't sampled any of Barrios' folkloric music yet, so let's hear this.
and popular, appealing. And this is another way that Barrios was modern in that he's sort of combines art music with popular music. This was a really popular thing to do in the uh, early 20th century. You would hear like elements of jazz or elements of dance hall tunes being put into um, pieces of classical music. And uh, Barrios does that too, although he doesn't really combine them much. He keeps them all separate in separate mm. pieces. Anyway, very appealing piece there. Track seven, Danza Paraguaya, number one, is a folkloric dance with some tricky rhythmic effects and an attractive, popular-sounding melody, complete with some harmonization at times. Track eight, Vidalita con Variaciones, and uh, we get a reading of Barrios's poem El Bohemio, which is the uh, poem that this um, album is named after, uh, narrated by Orlando Rojas. He reads the poem while yeah. Barrios plays now the issue i have with this is we can't really concentrate on tipo garcia's playing because the voice is really what's drawing your attention here it's right. in spanish and um the text portrays the composer as a wandering troubadour the melody is romantic the poem is recited over tipo garcia's playing as we said and the narrating voice suits the romantic playing well and the variations are subtly varied you can certainly hear them all if you focus on that but you wind up paying attention to the narration to be uh honest Thibault Garcia remains discreet in this performance okay track nine Beethoven piano sonata number 14 in C sharp minor the moonlight sonata you've all played this if you played the piano this movement this is the adagio movement arranged by Barrios I've never heard this played on the guitar before this was the mm. first time and it works pretty well uh judge for yourself let's hear the opening Yeah. Now, part of the work's expression is the sustaining bass notes on the piano, which doesn't make as big an impact here, although those bass notes are clearly heard. The movement comes across as mildly dark and rather attractive. Thibault Garcia lends his characteristic expressive phrasing to the theme, and the arrangement itself is well done, with voices jumping to different registers in the middle, as in the piano version. I was pretty amazed that it all worked. Track 10, Las Abejas. The bees. This is a hammer-on theme, slowly taken. Suddenly the piece starts buzzing with figuration, and impressive interpretation here from Thibaut Garcia, who makes the circling, buzzing motion of the bees in this piece palpable. All right, track 11, Julia Florida. Now, I looked uh, this piece up because uh, I was curious about Julia Florida's name. Rick Stover, who is a guitarist and issuer of editions of Barrios's music, as quoted in an uploaded text by guitarist Benjamin Verdery, tells us that Barrios wrote Julia Florida in December 1938 while living in Costa Rica. Uh, Julia Florida was architect, guitar aficionado, and friend of Barrios, Francisco Salazar's niece, Julia Martinez, whom Barrios taught. She was called Julia Florida because she grew up very fast in adolescence. She bloomed and mm -hmm. shot up at an early age, and Florida means bloomed. 
So there you go. Oh, you Florida residents <laughs> now know what your state's name means. Okay, this has a slow and melting opening theme, and yeah, this is one of his most famous pieces. We have to hear this, so... beautiful. Mm. By now, you may have figured out that Barrios not only writes in a romantic style, but he has a way with melody. He comes up with these really beautiful themes. This is one reason why his music is so loved and really so required of sure. classical guitarists. Tipo Garcia, as you heard here, makes the tempo linger a bit to get maximum romance out of the theme. It's a beautiful performance of a catchy and touching work, uh, one that should be better known. In the second minute, the harmony brightens and the tempo quickens a bit so that the piece has a bit of lift in its step. When the opening A section comes back at about the three-minute mark, it's even slower and more meltingly played than at the beginning, with even more tenderness in the caressed-out melody and lightening of dynamics at the end of phrases. So I'd recommend sampling that entire track. Track 12, Villancico de Navidad. This has the quality of a folk song with its precise, symmetrical melodic phrasing. Now, Navidad, of course, is Christmas, so we're getting a little bit of a early uh, <laughs> sound yeah. of the season here. Thibaut Garcia plays it lightly. Variations then come in, and Thibaut Garcia changes his sound to more of a fingernail attack to distinguish some of these variations. For the final section, he manages to lighten the attack even more. Impressive technique in this piece, and I like the harmonics at the end, yeah, too. Yeah, I noticed that, too. Yeah, really beautiful. Track 13. Valse, Opus 8, number 3, in D minor. This is a pretty lively waltz. I like de Garcia's song-like handling of the melody. There's a lot of rubato applied to the end of phrases, as in a Viennese waltz, making it sound romantic. Let's hear that opening of this. that uh, harmonic that leads yep. you back into the uh, opening theme again. The B section, which is more lyrical, starts at the one-minute mark, and it acts like a rondo. Uh, the theme comes back, then there's the C section afterwards, which features some uh, harmonic effects. Track 14, Valse, Opus 8, number 4 in G major, has a brief introduction, then the rhythm comes in. This one sounds more influenced by Chopin. It's well-known, I'm sure it's on the... Uh, John Williams' album of Barrios' works. It's characterful and appealing here. The figuration reminds me a bit of the uh, Minute Waltz of Chopin, if you know that one. It also acts like a rondo with B and C sections. Thibaut Garcia seems like he really relaxed into the two waltzes. He feels exceptionally at home in them. Track 15, Confession, Romanza. A more muted tone is applied here. The piece features a melody with the chords played in between beats, 
The piece has sections interspersed between the opening theme, so it acts as a rondo. Pretty ending chord high up on the guitar. Track 16, Coro de Saudade. Saudade is a memory. The harmony and lower end of the guitar give this work a heavy feeling. Antibo Garcia draws that quality out. The melody has a passionate Spanish sound to it, though it's gently interpreted here. Some of the more involved harmonic excursions are colored timbrely by Thibaut Garcia. It's a work with a lot of material, and Thibaut Garcia comes up with a lot of timbral ways to distinguish between sections. The writing is appealing throughout, very melodic. Track 17, Profession de Fe, or Profession of Faith. This is a poem. That's all it is. There's no guitar playing on this. The uh, This is Orlando Rojas speaking. Uh, the poem uh, honors the Guarani, the indigenous people of Paraguay. There's a fair halo of reverb around the voice on this, and the poem is in Spanish. So we just get a complete stop to the music here and just hear the poem. Track 18, Preludio en Do Menor, which is a C minor. Bach-like in approach, as in the C major prelude in the well-tempered clavier, or other Bach works like it. It moves in arpeggiated chords with gradual changes of harmony. Thibaut Garcia plays it gently and gives it a loving, caressing slow tempo and adds a bit of rubato at the end of some of the phrases. Track 19, Schumann, Kinderzenen, Opus 15, Number 7, Träumere. This is a famous piano piece that, again, piano students play. It's called uh, Daydream in English. And this is arranged by Barrios. Yeah, he was a great arranger of music for the guitar, mm. and this particular work uh, translates well from the piano. I was kind of surprised by this, too. Thibaut Garcia expertly draws a lot of feeling via his sense of when to use rubato. Beautiful performance, track 19. Track 20, La Cathedrale. This is a three-movement work. All three movements are very short. The entire piece is about six or seven minutes long. The first um, movement, Preludio Saudade, which means like a memory prelude. This is performed a lot, actually, this piece. Um, it's religious, but any sense of religion from this comes from the austere spaciousness of the phrasing and starts with a light sensitivity capturing the feeling of a memory, or saudade, in the guitar's high end. The entire work, though, in three movements, as I said, is pretty short. This movement is only like two minutes long. Let's sample the beginning. That's a good stopping mm. off point right there. The second movement, Andante Religioso, has a blocky feel to the phrases. It starts with a block chord, unusually, with all the strings picked together, and some pretty intriguing harmony at parts, suggesting a momentary drifting of the harmony. I'd like to sample this too. theme again in the lower register, really nicely done. The third movement, Allegro Solenne, a highly arpeggiated, quick-moving movement. It's the most involved movement virtuosically and harmonically, and is also the longest. There's impressive playing here by 
Thibaut Garcia. I'm going to sample this one too. to a new episode. The final track on the album is called Kazapa, and this is Barrios playing. It's a recording of him. The, this includes parts of the Paraguayan folk work Guida Campaña, also known as Pajaro Campaña, and it's one from the archives. Now, the recording's a bit fuzzy, but for such an old recording, it comes up exceptionally well here. It's been cleaned up. I'd say on hearing this that the Bogarcia is playing comes up comparably well. Barrios' playing really does sound effortless, particularly the way he rips through some of the decorative lines, accessing every note at high speed. Uh, he must have really been someone special to hear perform live. And that's it. This is a very attractive album of Barrios' works, and a welcome one, as we haven't heard an entire album dedicated to his music for some time. Uh, there are a lot of works on here that were unfamiliar to me, and it's a program that mixes all of Barrios' styles. Thibaut Garcia plays these works lovingly, lingering on details, and for me, this takes a bit away from the form of the pieces, which John Williams went out of his way to put in the forefront. So really, this is a contrasting album to John Williams's from long ago. I think that came out in the 90s. Thibaut Garcia is on this recording far more liberal with his rubato than John Williams was, so that makes his interpretations very different. I felt like I was getting lost in some of these pieces, especially at the beginning. Like the map of the forest I had was a bit blurry, but if you love romantic playing, you've certainly got it here. I have to confess, though, John Williams' album of Barrios' music made such a huge impression on me. It felt so definitive that I think of it as, quote, the way the music should be played, unquote. <laughs> and I know that's not right, okay, but it's kind of in my head that way. So I'm always kind of thinking of that when you listen to it. It's always good in classical music to shake those ideas loose, difficult as I'm finding to do it here. This is a different approach. It's attractive and a good way for a new generation of people to get to know Barrios's music. Yeah, I have some Barrios pieces scattered throughout some of my classical guitar recordings, but I've never heard a full recording of them. I don't know that, Williams, when you're referring to I found this uh, really passionate music. It's got a lot of romantic infusion, too, with the Chopin and other influences. As you mentioned, I noticed the rubato phrasing really stands out. But that gets mm -hmm. mixed with these intricate passages and overall longing melodies. The melodies are really beautiful. I thought it all sounds really great on Garcia's guitar, and his interpretations may be different, but they really help to bring out those wonderful qualities of the melodies. So if you like classical guitar and you love beautiful melodies, I think you're going to enjoy this one. Yeah, you really can't go wrong. I don't think it's a big leap from this to uh, like Hobim or somebody no, like that. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, they're very different styles, but still, you, you've still got that very romantic kind of quality to them. All right, our third classical recording, Florence Price, Symphony Number no. 4, William Dawson Negro Folk Symphony. And these are performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra, conducted by Yannick Neze Seguin. And this is um, on Deutsche Grammophon. Now, both composers on this are black American composers, and there's been a real resurgence in interest in Florence Price's music. The Philadelphia Orchestra premiered a lot of it back in the day when she was alive. 
And then she died, and as, as so often happens, <laughs> her music stopped being performed. And now there's a revival, and it seems like uh, Yannick Nézé-Séguin is uh, leading that charge, although there are other um, hmm. recordings coming out of her music, too. Now, we heard the previous release in this Deutsche Grammophone series, and I thought it was um, okay, really. Hmm. I compared it a lot to Dvorak, and I thought it didn't hold together well, but... I've reassessed that opinion a little bit because I think um, I think the music probably does hold together well, and I'm thinking that might be the performances that are that are doing that to it. Anyway, I'll discuss that here. We're going to hear Florence Price's um, Symphony Number no. Four first. It's in D minor, and uh, it's a four movement work. The first movement, tempo moderato, uh, starts out nobly and sounds like it has a snare drum in it too. Part of the reason I can't really tell is because this orchestra is huge <laughs> there's a lot of layers to it and they're all playing the same thing so that it comes across really powerfully it's not like a Mahler symphony where you have a huge orchestra but they're not all playing at the same time like mm-hmm. here you're hearing like this massive string section all playing you know at the same time and that gives the music a certain quality to it it actually reminds me of the earlier 20th century, because I've heard recordings from that period. Uh, we're into like leaner orchestras today, but I think uh, Nezet Seguin is trying to uh, recreate the sound of that era with the Philadelphia Orchestra here. The music is romantic sounding and warm at the beginning. By the 32nd mark, we hear the first tune derived from spirituals, and a lot of uh, Florence Price's um, memorable themes come from spirituals. Uh, she wanted this music to uh, be remembered and put them into her symphonies. Let's hear that first. I'm going to go ahead to where the spiritual starts. Okay, now you hear the grandness of that uh, theme as it's um, presented here. Now, I'm not sure if that's the score or if that's the conductor. Now, he really is kind of stretching it out and making it sound really big. But um, I feel like it could be shaped differently. I don't want to complain about it, though, because this is the first recording, I think. Anyway, it's a vivid recording, especially on the percussion, which really register if you listen to this on a stereo. We hear snippets of other popular tunes for moments, or I guess spirituals, in the orchestration. They really jump out at you because they're markedly different from Price's fairly dramatic and very romantic, sweeping, legato orchestration. The opening ends at 3.58 and we're on to a new section. The spiritual heard at the four-minute mark comes across as a grand statement. It's orchestrated so thickly. Price settles into the spiritual-derived music in a peaceful manner and drives the orchestra to dramatic climaxes in between and at the end of the more popular melodies. Now, I should mention, all of these spirituals, they were well-known at the time, and they have names. Now, unfortunately, I don't have the program notes for this symphony, and I really couldn't find anyone who has listed what they are, so I can't Mm. tell you what they are, unfortunately. I didn't recognize them, but they are there somewhere. 
or the names of the of the spirituals are you know known by somebody somewhere anyway I actually find this uh, work hard to follow as far as the form goes, and I'm thinking it's the popular melodies that hold the movement together. The writing seems to be sectional, with new themes starting in new sections. In the eighth minute, we get to some fortissimo dramatic writing with fragments of the spirituals heard. At 9 minutes and 45 seconds, there's an interesting interrupted cadence, after which we hear an almost Wagnerian theme for brass, then a new orchestral section. Familiar material returns by 1231. This is a very long movement. So in a sonata or sonata-like form, we hear a sweet, quieter theme in the 14th minute, then something more martial leading toward the end. The movement feels heavy and thickly scored. The orchestra sounds fine here. Yeah, it's a big orchestra. Now I want to say right away, I'm wondering if this music would be better served by a smaller orchestra, a leaner sound and a quicker tempo. I feel like this is too broad and romantic, and I feel like these uh, melodies would register uh, more effectively at a quicker tempo. It's also broad, and when I think of these uh, tunes that I know uh, from black spirituals, I don't think they're this slow. Like, they move at a quicker, more lively mm. rhythm and tempo, and uh, we'll get to that in the third movement, <laughs> but let's talk about the second movement first. This one has an opening theme similar to Dvorak's in the second movement of his New World Symphony. And I'm wondering if it's derived from the same tune um, mm. as this movement is. It's got that uh, sitting on a porch, watching the world go by feeling to it. Let's hear it. Now, it's not the same melody, although it's similar. Yes, yeah, similar. But it's got the same chords, I think. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly, but it sounds very similar. Right. Okay. There's a B section at 1 minute and 41 seconds. Uh, after a pause at 2 minutes and 10 seconds, the music sets up for an interrupted cadence, which uh, continues into the wind melody. The playing on this theme isn't quite as rapt as I think it should be. There's a great dissonance just after the 3 minute and 30 second mark leading to a new section. By the 6th minute we hear the opening theme again. Alright, and the third movement is a juba, which is a dance, also called a ham bone, and it was an African American dance involving stomping, slapping, and patting the arms, legs, chest, and cheeks. Okay, so you can hear the syncopated rhythm of the dance and before I play this sample, listen to this. I mean, I'm kind of complaining here. This isn't coming across as joyfully as it should. There needs to be more spring to the rhythm. And I feel like that's kind of an issue with this entire performance, not just this movement. It's coming across as more suave than anything else. And that's not really the right character. Anyway, just listen to this.
Okay. So you see what I mean? Now, it, it's coming across, so there's not really a, a big problem with it, but I think it could be a far more exciting. And I feel mm. like that excitement is written into the music, and we're not really uh, getting it, although we can sense that it's there from this performance. At a minute and 19 seconds, there's a quieter, more mysterious section with the oboe driving the melody. The oboe is actually a featured instrument throughout the work, which was pretty interesting to me. I wonder if she uh, knew the oboist mm. that was uh, premiering the work. At three minutes and 19 seconds, we're back to the A section and the Juba dance rhythm. There's a gigantic crashing chord to end the section, and then a brief coda in the last 45 seconds. The fourth movement is a scherzo, which is kind of an odd way to end a symphony. It's marked allegro, and it's a highly rhythmically defined movement that, again, I feel needs more thrust to it. It's content to be pleasingly melodic. There's something Mendelssohnian about the swirling, dancing themes occasionally heard, especially at a minute and 21 seconds. And that makes me think a leaner orchestra would be more effective mm. here. There's some brief menace at 2 minutes and 21 seconds, but the happy theme is back by the 3 minute mark and turns wild by the 3 minute and 20 second mark. A brief quietening leads the stormy build up to the final cadence. Okay, so this is a it's a good first performance of this work. We now know how it goes. I'd really like to hear other performances of it so that I can kind of get mm. more of an idea of what it could sound like. Tracks 5 through 7 are by William Dawson. The Negro Folk Symphony, which was premiered by the Philadelphia Orchestra, conducted by Leopold Stokowski oh. in 1934. Now, Leopold Stokowski, incidentally, if you've seen the movie Fantasia, the Disney movie, he's the conductor in the movie, you know, whose right. profile you see. And he conducted with his bare hands. He didn't use a baton. More comical, he's also the intimidating composer in the Bugs Bunny yeah, cartoons. Of course, yeah. <laughs> where everybody's, where, when the baritone is singing, it's Bugs Bunny, really, but everybody, he's dressed up like uh, Leopold Sikowski and all the uh, orchestral people are like, oh, Leopold, yeah. Leopold. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great cartoon. We should check that out on YouTube. Anyway, uh, Dawson's work is based on black spirituals as uh, Florence Price's is, but this is a very different sounding work. It was a big success at its premiere. Track one, again, I really wish I had program notes for this because it feels like my uh, assessment of this would have benefited from knowing a bit more about right. the work. But uh, the first movement, The Bond of Africa. This starts with a solo brass instrument, perhaps a trombone. We get those sweet strings that composers were fond of early in the 20th century, answering the opening. This starts with quite a bit of material. By the two-minute mark, we settle into an arrangement of the opening theme that leads to a pounding tympanum, driving the rhythm and music to a decrescendo and a new, more hushed section. It livens up by the third minute. Dawson is going for the dramatic here, as much as Price did in her first movement. At 4 minutes and 48 seconds, there's a pleasant theme in the winds that's interrupted by a tympanum and more martial dotted rhythm theme. And I want to sample that part, so I'm going to have to fade up into this. Let's see if I can find it.
nice little section change there on that mm. sudden uh, change of the uh, bass note. He's playing with the rhythm a lot in the way Beethoven used to, too, where he'd have like, you know, threes and then suddenly go to twos. Yeah. And uh, that sort of dramatic change. What he did there with the uh, bass note, he'll slip in a note that the harmony will pivot into the new theme to. And he does this quite often. At the six minute mark, there's a theme that I'm sure I've heard before, but I just can't place it. Themes are fragmented and build to or interrupted by other themes. There's a pretty powerful pounding timpani section in the ninth minute, which suddenly moves to the same theme in a softer dynamic. There's a powerful climactic section before the material settles into that Wagnerian brass we heard at the beginning. In this movement, the folk themes don't hang around for long and aren't completely spun out. They're the building blocks of the movement's material, powerful timpani roll during the approach to the final cadence. Track six, movement two, Hope in the Night. This starts with uh, gentle accompaniment in the strings as an English horn plays the folk theme. Pretty soon, the theme is accompanied by pizzicato strings and sounds like a slow walking bass. It's romantically toned in the strings and they take over the melody and play it legato and sweepingly. A dramatic climax at 2 minutes and 21 seconds leads to a pounding bass drum, a lot like the one opening Brahms' first symphony. But the material dissipates, and at 3 minutes and 6 seconds, we get a new chirpy folk melody, and I'd like to sample that particular one. Let's hear that. I've got to say, too, that in the rhythms, the uh, orchestra, the Philadelphia Orchestra and um, Neze Seguin sound more at home in this piece than they mm. did in the Florence Price piece, because this sounds a little more like a natural rhythm. This theme hangs around for a while, goes through some reorchestration until things turn dramatic and minor at around the fourth minute. At four minutes and 37 seconds, a violin picks up the folk theme and plays it forlornly. By around uh, 5 minutes and 40 seconds, earlier material starts repeating. We hear the earlier theme accompanied by pizzicato bass momentarily, this time with a counter melody in the flute, then the quicker theme we sampled just before. They go through various orchestral guises. By 7 minutes and 53 seconds, we're hearing the Brahms First Symphony bass drum theme, this time with bells added. Once again, as in the first movement, the themes go through various orchestral guises and are heard in fragmentary form one after another. At the end there are chiming bells used for accents before crescendos to what will eventually be the final chord, which is heard after a decrescendo almost takes the music to a complete fade out. Track 7, the third movement, Oh Let Me Shine, Shine Like a Morning Star. This starts with hushed tremolo strings and wisps of folk melody from the winds. We hear the main theme in the strings. I get the impression that Dawson was really influenced by Beethoven as well as by the spirituals that he grew up hearing because this hmm. the hushed tremolo strings at the beginning really are a Beethoven Ninth Symphony sort of um, feeling. They also Bruckner used them in all of his symphonies as well. There's a grand Hollywood quality to the big climaxes of this movement, the first of which is heard in the first minute. 
The movement is lively and eventful, the folk material dominating virtually all of it. There are some dance rhythms that peek out from time to time, as in the third minute. I like the transition to the quieter theme at 5 minutes and 31 seconds, played by the flute. There's a big dramatic Hollywood ending, complete with pounding timpani. This was a live recording, so there's also applause at the end. So I liked this uh, album enough, but I've got to say, I'm not entirely sure that Yannick Nezeseguan is doing justice to this music. Although he's recording it, and that's great. It's before the public. We know how it goes. And it's played well. But I think there's a lot more in there that we're not really picking up. I felt uh, that way on the previous recording, too. And I mentioned maybe a leaner orchestra or quicker tempos would help the interpretation. I'm just not getting the sense of spiritual yearning that these gorgeous and highly memorable melodies can communicate. I realized that an orchestra as large as this was the order of the day back in the 1940s and 30s when these pieces were written, but our ears have gotten away from such massed sounds. Nezeseguan is being careful to lay out all of the memorable themes, but a lot of their appeal has to do with rhythmic drive. In my opinion, I think this work is a lot more appealing than it's coming across here. Um, this is the Florence Price work. It's a good, solid performance, but there's more that can be put across. I feel like the performance lacks momentum, so I'm going for a leaner orchestra with more rhythmic drive to it, but for now, this will serve. Of the two pieces, Dawson's is more well-known, but I felt Price's was the more appealing work. Perhaps I'm just getting familiar with her musical personality through the recordings of her music I've heard. Dawson's work, it's very busy, and uh, he really winds out these movements. Uh, and gets a lot of material in there. Nessessa Gwen's recordings have to be applauded for putting this, these, both of these works before the listening public on new recordings. But again, I want to hear more recordings of the same tune so I can just kind of mm. assess it differently. The other two, I also enjoyed the price more. I found it melodic, tonally rich and sweet on the ears. You can pick up the Negro spiritual themes. You get that similar pastoral kind of Dvorak section too. And I also find a lot of parallels to Gershwin's music, even if it's just in expressing that kind of American spirit of that era. Yeah. I like the orchestration in terms of what she's written. The parts are not so layered that your ear is drawn away from what she really wants you to focus on or that certain instrumentation. And as you mentioned... Like in the Dawson piece, right? Yeah, that <laughs> may be better served by right. a leaner orchestra, uh, right. just so that it comes off a little bit more, I don't know, wispy when it should be. Right. Um, but yeah. I noticed that I could tell like, oh, she wants me to be listening to this section right here. And that was very mm. apparent. So I found that interesting. The Dawson, well, it's very mercurial, uh, yeah. constantly changing rhythmic figures. There's a good balance of instrumentation, lots of climactic moments. It's quite unpredictable, <laughs> throughout, yeah, it uh, but it's is. easy to enjoy. I mean, it's rhythmic and exciting. It's got a lot of catchy melodies in it too. Yeah. Anyway, great that it's being recorded. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. This is the beginning. Hopefully, we'll have a lot more recordings to go. By the way, there was earlier this year a recording of Florence Price's Piano Concerto by a completely different ensemble, oh. which I'll have to check out now because I got to see right. how that goes. All right, time to jump over to the jazz side. We've got a lot of variety this evening we in terms did. of instrumentation and also geography. We're going to start out over in Denmark. Mm, where jazz is happening. Yeah, it's always happening. You know, I think Denmark has a bass 
player genetic lab or something. They just turn out <laughs> so many great bass players uh, from Denmark. Yeah, and this one's one of our favorites. Actually. Yeah. We've heard. This is about the third album we're hearing him on. At like, least, in, yeah. You know. uh, but he's not the uh, main man. We're uh, talking about harmonica for this one. And mm-hmm. that's uh, Matthias Heise and his quintet. The recording is Mouth Games. It's on Storyville Records. And it came out on October 6th. Now, I held off on this a bit. For some reason, we had discussed uh, Ivanic Prene's harmonica right. album earlier. And then suddenly, right after that, there were three chromatic harmonica releases all at once. And I. <laughs> that happens a lot in classical music, too, that sort of thing. Yeah, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do an all harmonica episode. And then I thought, no, you know. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't do that. That might be just a little too much. Of, we we uh, want to be thing. on the air next week. So, yeah. <laughs> Not that we don't like harmonica. We love anyway. harmonica, yeah. And uh, what drew me to this was also the basis we're referring to, Thomas Fonisbeck, who is mm-hmm. a fabulous player. And uh, we've heard him with uh, a vocalist we really, really like too, uh, Sin Eig. And so, right. And we heard him with Enrico Pierre So that's three. Yeah. So that's, this is the fourth album at least right. that we've heard him on. Okay. Anyway, Hesse is born in 1993, Danish chromatic jazz harmonica player, or chromatic harmonica jazz player, however you want to say it. He founded his fusion band, which is kind of his main outlet. That's the uh, Matthias Hesse Quadrillion back in 2012. And at that time, he was also named the chromatic harmonica world champion at the event in <laughs> Germany. So I didn't know there was a competition for them. Well, that's I pretty interesting. Know. Anyway, he's been really busy recently, having two releases last year. He had his uh, self-titled Matthias Hesse Quadrillion release. That's more of a fusion type thing. And also an interesting one, an album for Aster. It's a recording of Piazzolla's music with harmonica, accordion, vibraphone, and chamber orchestra. So this is his first acoustic jazz recording and uh, this is what he says about it quote i've always played a lot of jazz gigs gathering tunes over a long time finding musicians that i really connect with i felt like now i have found the right musicians heart to heart we just speak to each other in the studio there has to be a lot of interplay spontaneous feeling and events that nobody can prepare in advance to make this happen i had to be on a certain level prepared focused for the first time, I had the skills and maturity to make my first acoustic jazz album. Not an easy task. Hmm. Rounding out the list of players on this recording, Hesse's on chromatic harmonica, Jacob Christofferson on piano, Pere von Bulo on guitar, Thomas Fonisbach on bass, and Jeppe Graham on the drums. All tracks here are composed by Hesse except tracks 6 and 7, which I'll bring up when we get to them. And so we're going to start out the recording with a tune called Searchlight Theory. Graham gets it going with eight measures of a funky rock beat on the drums. The first melody section is 32 measures with short phrases played in unison by Heisei and Fonsback. It sounds lively and upbeat. Then there's an eight measure bridge section where Bulo's guitar gets center stage. And then another 32 measure melody section with unison guitar and harmonica this time. The last note is held out over into a four-measure drum-filled break before Heisei gets to soloing. Uh, he blows flowing melody ideas with tight rhythmic phrases over Fonsback's snappy lines. Let's check out some of that uh, harmonica solo on this first tune. Thank you. 
Yeah, it's a pretty funky beat he's playing over there, and that uh, sounds yeah, really, that's really cool. uplifting. Yeah. The sound of the harmonica tends to be kind of freeing and uplifting, kind of like those uh, 1980s Pat Metheny albums were. Right, you know, he's got right. kind of a similar vibe. Well, the solos here, as you hear, follow the melody bridge melody pattern that we heard earlier in the song. Christofferson follows the harmonica, then with a piano solo, and then they open it up with a section of leading lines and long notes uh, held out for Graham to fill up with the drums before a final run through the melody sections. Track two, Para Mi Madre, For My Mom. This is really fun. Uh, <laughs> nice Latin melody here. Hey, it gets it started on the little intro phrase, and then the melody construction is in A-A-B-A form with 16 measure sections. Hesse takes the first A and then Bulo on acoustic guitar on this tune. Harmonica and piano are in unison on the B sections that has an extra two-measure harmonica trill before getting back to the A section played by both harmonica and the guitar. Graham keeps the drumming light, switching up from brushes to a more clicky kind of idea. Let's hear how that all gets started. love those uh, harmonica chords. They sound so thick. Christofferson solos first on piano on this one, keeping it rhythmic and a bit bluesy. Heisei's solo really floats out with extended lines on the harmonica. There's a new 16-measure section that has first unison harmonica and bass, and then harmonica and piano subbing for the first melody A section part. And then Christofferson takes the next A section on piano. Heisei's back for the B section, and Bulo joins him for the final A and a neat extended ending. A really fun arrangement on this tune. Track 3 is called Winter Rose. Sparse, ghostly solo piano chords hang in space getting more motion, and the tempo just before one minute in. Guitar, bass, and drums come in softly before Hesse starts the waltzing ballad melody. has an interesting structure. There's an eight-measure A section twice, then a contrasting eight-measure B section that seems like it will repeat, but the next time is only six measures, and then the A comes again, creating a sense of anticipation. The interplay with Fauna's back throughout is subtle, Heisei ends up high with a little dissonance into a trill and continues on into a solo with lines that are like a bird catching the wind into higher climbs. Bulo has a relaxed electric guitar solo that matches the mood and some tasty double stops in there as well. Getting back to the melody, Fonesback gets the first A section this time and really rings it out on the bass. The final section really builds to a big climax. Track four, Blues for Toots. Whose toots? I think I can guess this one. Jean-Baptiste Frédéric Isidore Baron Thielmans. Okay. Otherwise known as Toots Thielmans. Yeah, yeah the uh, 
master of harmonica, probably the biggest name in jazz history, who lived from uh, 1922 to 2016, so he was age 94. Uh, he was Belgian. Well, this tune is uh, blues. It's a 12-bar blues form, but there's a lot more going on here. Uh, the rhythm section takes a syncopated round of that before Heisei and Bulo work the jumpy melody lines together in unison two times around. I wanted to sample that, but the harmonica what? solo that follows and the killer swing groove is what we really need to hear on this tune. Heisei is on fire with an exciting solo first with some Coltrane-like ideas in his lines, and Graham is really swinging and smashing the drum accents underneath as Fonesback digs in on the bass too. Let's check out some of that midway in the solo to the end of it. Sounds like he almost uh, hyperventilated in there. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and those drum beats are killer. Well, Bulo's next with a bendy start that we just got a taste of there to his guitar solo. And he's got a lot of fun with this one. And they vamp it out for Graham to work up the drums before a couple final runs through the blues melody. Track five, Funky Sister. And Fonesback gets to start it out with some fun and funky bass work working it into a groove. Actually, we've got to just hear this one get going because this one's a lot of fun and his bass work is always great to listen to. comes the melody. It's handled in unison there by harmonica and guitar. It's 48 measure construction, kind of long. Depending on how you look at it, it you could see it as like A-A-B-C-A-A, or if those sections are longer, maybe just A-B-A. Well, we've also got to hear some of Hayes' solo here, because I'm betting that you have not heard a harmonica with a wah-wah effect uh, before. <laughs> that was the first and, for me. Uh, yeah, so you want to hear some of that. So let's uh, join back in. Actually, it's still been playing along silently here, and you're going to enjoy this. 
those are some fun mouth games for sure going on yeah, there. It sounds like it's underwater at yeah. times. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Well, Bulo gets a matching funky guitar solo with some tasty licks. Then they go through the melody again, and then they bring it down to just Fonesbeck soloing over the guitar. It builds back up for Christofferson to work the piano with some added lines from Heisei to the end. Uh, lots of fun on this tune. Track six. We're going to get a John Coltrane tune. 26-2, written as 26-2. It was originally recorded by Coltrane in 1960, but it was released 10 years later by Atlantic Records on an album entitled The Coltrane Legacy. We've got just a trio on this recording. The composition itself is a contrafact of Charlie Parker's confirmation with harmonic alterations, little Coltrane changes, basically. And you know them from Giant Steps. The, but the first few notes are teased to the original Charlie Parker melody. So if you know confirmation, you'll probably pick that up. Heisei starts writing on the melody over Graham's drums only. And then Funnisback joins in from the 17th bar. Heisei gets on soloing and has a lot of freedom with no chordal instrument there. Funnisback gets a bouncy and woody solo too, with Heisei adding some chord accompaniment then. Uh, they do some trading eights with Graham, and then Heisei and Fonesbeck sync up on some unison melody lines before the bass splits off walking, and Heisei gets a few more improvisational lines before the ending. Track 7, back to an original from Heisei, Voices in the Dark. It's a slow ballad with an 8-bar rhythm section intro and ringing piano from Christofferson. It has a gentle, introspective 24-measure melody from Heisei's harmonica, there's another eight-measure ringing section of piano before uh, his solo, which has some really virtuosic figures. Let's hear some of that going on once his solo gets started. Butterflies yeah. there. Very impressive. And, yeah. Well, back tone sounds great ringing under there. And he has a very melodic bass solo on this one as well. So let's check out a little bit of his fine bass work on this tune. Heisei returns to a fluttery pause, and then they continue on with a rubato ending over rippling piano. Very pretty. Track 8 is uh, an old standard, I Want to Be Happy, Vincent Yeomans, written for the 1925 musical No No Nanette. 
They have some cute fun on their arrangement of this tune. Bulo is back on guitar and has a harmonized line with Heisei on the bouncy melody, but after the B section they break it up into a slow loping tempo for a few measures before returning to the bounce. Uh, they break into Heisei's solo, starting out just over the drums before the bass and piano come in and out again. It's really swinging along, and Heisei has some impressive double-time licks in this one. Here, Christofferson has an energetic piano solo. We haven't heard anything from him yet, so let's check out a little bit of what he's doing on this tune. exciting stuff there. Bullo follows on guitar as you hear him getting going there with a speedy clean toned lines on this one and once more around the fun melody arrangement wraps it up. And the recording ends up with Heisei's final original blues for my father. A measure of drums brings in Fauna's back walking the bass for a round of 12 bars. Heisei and Bullo are in for a unison round of the boppy blues melody that follows some interesting harmonies. The next time around, Christofferson joins in with some syncopated piano chords, and Heisei's up first to solo, and he mixes up some more outside harmonic ideas with bluesy phrases. Christofferson has a piano solo, and Fonsbach gets a really great bluesy bass solo on this one, so this will be our last sample for here. Let's check out his solo on this tune. Right, from there, the endings are a lot of fun. Heisei and Bulo trade eights and then fours of unison lines with Graham until it kind of spirals out. And then suddenly, harmonica, bass, and guitar pick up the melody in unison, and the drums and piano join back in before it goes around once more to finish things up. A really fun recording. Heisei shows not only great harmonica chops, but he's got a real kind of post-bop jazz concept developed with adventurous solos. His original compositions are interesting with a couple of complex blues tunes, nice ballads, and we get some Coltrane and a neat standard arrangement. Fabulous bass as always from Fonsbach, pulsing things along with exciting solos added in. And Christofferson and Bulo do nice work too, and Graham really swings and hits those accents hard on the drums. 
everybody should play some mouth games and have fun with this recording. <laughs> yeah, I kind of think of the you know, the chromatic harmonic as like a rather cheerful instrument. It always mm. just comes across as sunny to me. Uh, it can play the blues, of course, but its tone is for the most part uplifting. And Heise certainly has that quality in his playing and certainly in the upbeat pieces. So I thought this was a really sunny and enjoyable album. He gets a more downcast sound than Winter Rose, but the sound is still appealing. And I liked all the variety on this album. There were a lot of different types of uh, you know compositions. It put the harmonica through some moods that we don't readily associate yeah, with it. Yeah. You know, I enjoyed him most in the track 26-2, where I feel like he stretched out the most. Uh, he also does some melodic exploring in Blues for My Father, where he's pretty exciting. And of course, for the both of us, Faunus Bake stands out for his bass solos, which all take a different approach. He's a really interesting player, and yeah. I grew to like him even more than I already did by hearing him on this album. And I like the other solos too, piano and guitar contrasting with the harmonica and bass in their approaches. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm up for those mouth games, yeah. Yeah. All right, let's come back to the U.S. for some piano trio. And this is a new recording from Michael Weiss on Cellar Live came out. November 3rd. Now, depending on where you're at, the pronunciation will be different. I believe the British pronounce the H, so they would say homage. And in America, they drop the H. It depends where you are. If you're in uh, New York, it might be homage. Homage. The French (laughs) don't use the H, but they have the homage. Yeah. And that's the title of this recording. I'm guessing this is homage because it's got one, although the French homage has two M's, I think. So this would be homage. Anyway, say it however you want. Weiss was Mm. born in Dallas, Texas. And after he got a bachelor's of music degree from Indiana University, he came to New York City in 1982. In 1989, he won second prize in the Thelonious Monk International Jazz Piano Competition. And in 2000, he was the grand prize winner in the BMI Thelonious Monk Institute's Composer Competition. He toured with tenor saxophonist Johnny Griffin for 15 years. He's also played and recorded with lots of other big names. George Coleman, Charles McPherson, Lou Donaldson, Benny Golson, Art Farmer, Tom Harrell, Jerry Mulligan, and many, many more. This is his second recording for Cellar Live following last year's uh, persistence. He's got four other recordings as a leader. Here, rounding out the piano trio, we've got Paul Sikovy on bass, and Pete Van Nostrand on drums. And as the title suggests, many of the pieces here are dedicated to other musicians. All right, Mike, your French pronunciation is much better than mine. Let's have the first track. This is Un Petit Quelque Chose. <laughs> yeah, it's like a little of something or a little yeah, of this, like that, right? A little of something, yeah. A, a little something or other, let's say. Right. Okay. Well, it's a whole lot of swinging to start out, that's for sure. A nice mid-tempo feel. There's a bouncy eight-measure intro of syncopated piano, locking in with bass figures and ride cymbal. The melody is a 32-measure construction, kind of like an ABAB form. The bass and left-hand piano keep the snappy motion over that hi-hat and fills from Van Nostrand, and there are little spots for right-hand piano figures to stand on their own. A light break on the last two measures lets Weiss lead into his solo before Sikovy gets the bass walking below. And Weiss has relaxed melodic lines with nice attention to touch and dynamics. So let's check out some of his playing on this first tune.
real effortless feel on this tune and that playing there. Just a piano solo on this one, so they get right back to the melody, and it ends with a really nice final ascending piano line. Track two is Hail Bop, also a Michael Weiss tune, well, named after the discoverers of the comet, of course, but if you drop a P, you can make it just bebop. <laughs> see what I did there? Well, yeah, Ben Ostrad gets it going with an eight-measure drum intro. Nice tight brushwork that will continue through the tune. The melody is a happy boppy affair, 32 measure AABA form. The bass is syncopated and choppy on the A sections and changes up to walking on the B. And Weiss is soon off onto a solo with smooth boppy lines. Let's hear this tune get going. Yeah, sounds yeah. so fun there. Uh, he's really chaining together different rhythmic figures into longer lines, constantly finding new creative stuff over his choruses there. Van Nostrom gets a whole time around the form for himself on the drums here before they hit the melody once more. Track three, a standard. I'll remember April by Gene DePaul. It was a popular song written in 1941. It made its debut in the Abbott and Costello comedy Ride'em Cowboy. Oh, boy. This is usually done as an up-tempo tune, but they give it a relaxed treatment here. And as Weiss describes in his album notes, quote, music for sipping your brandy by the fireplace in quiet contemplation. Now, all I need is the fireplace now, and I'll be all set. Well, I, I substitute the stereo for the fireplace, and it go. works just as well, if not better. <laughs> well, the mood <laughs> is set with a loping ostinato bass figure from Sikivy on the six-measure introduction. Weiss adds interestingly voiced chords and Van Nostrand brushwork. This tune has a rather long 48-measure melody. Playing it at this relaxed tempo gives you more opportunity to savor the delicious harmonies that Weiss works out here. And also be sure to check out the fine bass work from Sikivy, who changes up from the ostinato and then works some unison lines with his piano left hand. Let's check out the first minute of this tune.
This is a great melody. Those are some really classy chords there, and I love that little uh, bass line they add into that. Weiss's solo on this one matches the mood with smooth flowing melodic improvisations, including subtle rhythmic variations. They return to the final 16 measures of the melody, which is like the beginning, and Weiss decorates it a little differently with harmonies and into an outro over the ostinato to an ending of soft ringing notes. Track four is The Griffin, another Weiss original dedicated to Johnny Griffin, a rhythmic eight measure intro started by chords from Weiss and joined by bass and drums. It's got a playful 32 measure melody of two similar halves. Listen to how the bouncy bass beat changes up to walking on the second half of the phrases. Weiss's solo is bubbly and swinging. My ear is drawn to the cymbal rhythms of Van Nostrand driving it along. He gets some extra fun taking eight measure sections alternating with percussive piano chords. They bring back the intro idea to set up another run through the melody. And there's a final coda with some rising piano phrases and a little drum break before the last phrase. Track five is the title track, Homage. Not for anyone in particular, this was originally composed as the second movement of a suite. It's mostly a composed piece with just a short improvised section. I'm not sure of the structure here really, but it has a kind of bolero rhythm to it, and Van Nostrand has some nice tom tones and other drum textures, a gentle melody. The tempo is slow, but the rhythmic movement is syncopated and interesting with synchronization of the bass and piano. It's a good chance to listen to Weiss's chord voicings and subtle colorings. Track six, Suddenly, this is a tune by Claire Fisher, American keyboardist, composer, arranger, and band leader. Th that's a man, Claire. His real name was Douglas Claire Fisher. And uh, it seems to be the first recording of this I can find is 1979, recording Latin Patterns, the legendary MPS sessions. This one has a Latin-y bossa beat to it and a melody couched in lots of rich chords from Weiss as it moves along. After a six measure intro, it has a really long unfolding melody. It seems to be about 56 measures if I got it right. Sikavi has ringing bass lines and intervals pushing it not quite into samba territory underneath is Weiss's gently ringing solo. Lots of nice cymbals and drum textures from Van Nostrand on this one. All right, track seven, We Love Horace, another Weiss original for Horace Silver, of course. This one captures the rhythmic funkiness of Silver nicely. There's an eight measure rhythmic piano chord focused intro. The melody's 12 measures with interesting harmonies and cute figures. They go around that twice and the solos are 12 bar blues. Let's hear the start of this tune.
right, off on the blues there. Weiss keeps it rhythmic, bluesy, and tasty, and he finishes up his solo with a quote from Silver's Doodlin, if you know the first uh, Horace Silver and the Jazz Messengers recording from 1955, you'll recognize that. Sigivy gets a bass solo too, relaxed and melodic playing there, and back around the melody a couple times to wrap it up with a nice little cute coda as well. Track 8, Hoagie Carmichael's Skylark, a rippling and ringing piano intro over bass pulses into the melody. Everybody knows this melody. Uh, the treat here is the new harmonization and two-hand integration that Weiss works in making it tasty and fresh. Let's just drop the needle <laughs> into the song about one minute in so you can hear some of that niceness here. Those improvisations that'll come up have a lot of flutter and float on this tune and a fun rippling ending too. Track 9, Lullaby of the Leaves, tune from 1932, Bernice Petkery. The first recording was by Adrian Schubert in his orchestra in the same year. Uh, maybe the jazz version of this that sticks in my head most is the Grant Green, the guitarist version. Uh, it's a tantalizing minor 32 measure melody AABA form. Uh, listen to Weiss's left hand work here and the piano chord and bass integration. And Sikivi is up for a uh, bass solo first on this one. We haven't heard him yet, so let's hear his bass solo on this tune. work going on there. Weiss's solo has some playful skittering ideas and fun scales and a little taste of Grieg's in the Hall of the Mountain King <laughs> quoted in there as well yeah. before they take the melody once more to a fun little ending. That was cute. Track 10, A World Away, another Michael Weiss original. It's not a tribute 
But the mood, Weiss says, reminds him of Bobby Hutcherson's playing, great vibraphonist, and I tend to agree with that. A rubato and rippling piano intro over bowed bass, and then Weiss sets the 6-8 groove with piano chords. The melody is modally and chromatic and has a repeating nine-measure phrase, a short three-measure bridge or final section, and then back to the original phrase for Weiss to launch into improvisations with a lot of percussive chords. It's kind of unique in a change in style from what we've heard so far, so let's hear this one get started. There's a great groove going on under there from Van Nostrand, where they wrap it up with the melody section uh, that ends with the three-measure section of the melody we heard at the beginning there. And the final tune, an Oscar for Treadwell. It's a Charlie Parker tune dedicated to the great pianist Barry Harris here. Charlie Parker's melody on rhythm changes. And it's fast and happy bebop here. Weiss has a solo eight-measure intro into the busy melody and continues on to a rollicking solo. Van Nostrand gets some action, trading some exciting fours with Weiss before they get back to a final round of the melody where Sikivy gets to walk it through the B section. And that's it. Well, Mike, we've heard a lot of great piano trio recordings this year, but this one ranks up with the best. Weiss is a sophisticated and classy pianist. He seems to be good at everything. Classic piano styles, rich harmonic ideas, and exciting solos. The program here is varied with some fresh takes on standards and the dedicated pieces that cover a lot of styles including swing, ballads, Latin, modal 6-8, bebop. Sigvi and Van Nostrand are a perfect match, keeping everything tight and grooving, and they have their own nice solo spots too. Highly recommended. Yeah, pretty much I'd say the same thing. One, one odd thing about the recording that I noticed was that the drums are very noticeably placed almost completely in the right channel. Then, mm-hmm. you know, they're not all there, but the piano and bass are toward the left, but they have more like overall presence throughout both speakers. It doesn't hurt the recording, though. I'm just kind of pointing that out. The drums are very clear. The recording is good, and I enjoyed Weiss's, and I use the word like you, elegant, playing throughout. He's an elegant pianist. He's the kind of pianist I can listen to for hours on end. Um, The ideas keep coming. They're all appealing. And I liked his approach in Lullaby of the Leaves especially. Mm -hmm. The creeping rhythm of that track kind of seemed to inspire his solo. So he kind of, it felt like it really lifted him in a way. Elegant, appealing jazz piano playing. I could listen to this on repeat. Yeah. Absolutely. Definitely check this one out. 
See, now I have too many uh, best because we're going to do the best of at the I end know. of the year. I've got too many now. I, I only get 10 jazz picks. I don't really know what I'm going to do. Anyway, I could we'll just see. pick 10 piano trio recordings from this year, probably. Yeah, maybe. And this mm. would definitely be in there. We're going to go back to Europe for the final recording, and we're going to expand up to a septet. Right? It's called Seven Colors. It's a Privave Records Swiss drummer, Elmar Frey. Well, I don't know if he's pronounced it Frey or Fry. I'm not sure. Hmm. Depends where he's from. He's Swiss? Yeah. Oh, God. I don't know. Could be. Depends on what part of Switzerland he's from. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. This came out on November 3rd. Well, Frey has 13 records as a band leader, over 30 as a sideman, and he's played alongside Benny Golson, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Barry Harris, Greg Osby, many others. And this Seven Colors expands on his 2005 sextet release that was called News from the Past. So we get another brass voice added here. Whenever I see a sextet, septet, or octet, I'm hoping for good arrangements. Yeah. And we won't be disappointed here. There's oh, lots we certainly of won't. <laughs> positive energy in these tunes, too. Yeah. So we've got Fry on drums, Daniel Schenker, trumpet and flugelhorn, Christoph Grob, tenor sax, soprano sax and flute, Stefan Schlegel, trombone and valve trombone, Rodrigo Botter-Mael, alto sax and flute, Alessandro de Episcopo, piano, and German Kleiber on bass. And all compositions on this recording are by Frey, except track number six. We'll talk about that when we get there. And well, this one got me right from the start with the first tune here, Blue Course Ready. Off to an exciting swinging beginning. Frey brings the tune in with an eight-measure drum intro. The horns get eight and then a two-measure drum fill before the 48-measure melody. It's an A, B, A, B, C, and then doubled up on the second half of the B that we heard earlier uh, into a solo break for Shanker to get the trumpet solo going. Uh, you got to hear this get started. It's going to show you what kind of exciting recording is coming up. start and nice arranging there keep hearing that one yeah i know (laughs) it's really great intro a nice arranging especially on those rising b sections where the horns are all harmonized and split off 
Well, Schenker builds up tension there with shorter phrases in his trumpet solo into longer connected lines, finding some interesting roots through the changes with a little turkey shake ending. And <laughs> Episcopo follows on piano with a percolating solo on this one. The horns then all get to trade a section of eights with Fry in order on drums, uh, grab on tenor, Mayo on alto, Schenker back on trumpet, and Schlegel on trombone. Fry's got some really tight drum strokes uh, in his drumming. Pretty impressive. And once more through the melody sections to end things up. Really nice arrangement. Track two, here comes Livio. De Episcopo starts this one out with 16 measures of solo stridy piano. Grab joins in on the super happy melody on soprano sax. Another really fun arrangement that made me think of a smaller version of Dave Brubeck's The Duke from Miles Ahead, you know, Miles Davis and Gil Evans recording. The structure is fun and teasing. Soprano sax on the A, the rest of the horns come in on the next repeat of that, but there are two extra beats added to the sixth measure, <laughs> and then a nine measure B section, a modified A, and then five measures of stop time with the horns building up to a trombone solo from Schlegel with some fun triplet lines and tricky slide work, or maybe he's on valve there. Episcopo gets a go on piano on this one as well, and the horns are back on a new melody over the A sections, and then the B and A we heard before, stop time section that we heard originally ends it up. Classic, and at the same time fresh and interesting. Track three, Raffaello's Waltz. All right, a waltz, the only waltz with a five measure 4-4 four, four intro that I've heard. It's got unison bass and piano lines. The melody has gently flowing flute and tenor sax lines for 36 measures. Trumpet and trombone are in for a shorter 16-measure section, giving it some lift and then back to the flute and sax line with a lusher full horn arrangement. Grab follows out of that, or flows out of that rather, with a tenor sax solo with a nice full tone and unforced waltzing swing. I assume it's Mayo then next on the flute solo with some cool varied tones and articulations fluttering up a storm. Back to the previous lines where the trumpet and trombone joined in and into a final flute and sax melody section with warm brass counter lines to the ending from the rhythm section with some final piano trickles. Track 4, Oriental Second Line. This is a funky fun number. It starts with four measure sections of unison bass and piano lines and tight snare figures from Frey that alternate with four measure tr solo trombone lines from Schlegel. Things get moving on over a New Orleans beat from Frey then, and it's all kind of fun and cool. So let's check out this sound. beat yeah, yeah. great trombone work too 
Well, sassy soprano sax and trumpet lines weave in between some piano from uh, Diapiscopo with the big fun dissonant chords and ringing notes. The horns all get some simultaneous blowing going into a funky alto sax solo from Mayo, working up to a cry, and Schenker gets a trumpet solo too with a more measured approach and some nice rhythmic figures in his lines. Diapiscopo has some nice ominous piano sounds uh, going again as the horn lines uh, we heard from before come back with everyone blowing this time and they push it straight to the ending. Track five is called Shadow Play. This one is a ballad. It starts with a four measure intro of rising bass and piano ostinato figures over cymbal washes from Fry, Grab and Mayo, both on flute, come in on the melody and it's a dreamy kind of modal landscape with piano chords and sprinkles from De Episcopo. Let's hear it. change right after the 16th measure there you know Mm. despite the title of the previous track this one reminds me of kind of Debussy and Orientalism uh, here yeah I said Chinese folk songs too or just something Asian Southeast Asian maybe well it continues floating along like that and then soft trumpet or flugelhorn probably and trombone tones join in the final section and the ostinato continues on to close it out Track six, the only non-original tune here. This is A Nightingale Sang in Berkeley Square, a song by Manning Sherwin. This is kind of a British romantic pop song written in 1939, published in 1940. There are a lot of recordings of it. Glenn Miller, Ray Noble, uh, Guy Lombardo, Frank Sinatra, Nat King Cole. Now, originally, this tune has a little bit different structure. It's A-A-B-A form, but the A sections are 10 measures and the B, 8. But here... Frey gets it going with a four-measure intro, and the horns and bass take the melody on a tightly synced arrangement. The melody is played at like a halftime feel over the swinging rhythm, which then should make it 20 measures, but it's not. It's like if you count it at that double time, it's like 18. And the final time, the A section gets stretched out with lots of drum fills, making it fun and really unpredictable. Schlegel's up first for a swinging trombone solo full of melodic lines. It's a really good one. And Grob follows on tenor sax. All the horns are in on a new composed swinging melody line that works into the B section and some final fun with drum fills on the last section, building it up to the ending. Track seven, Silverish, as in Horacy. Yeah, he's, he's, getting, he's getting a lot of uh, attention tonight from he these is, uh, yeah. people. Yeah, it's nice to see. I liked him. I always like Horace Silver's playing. Yeah. And, uh, well, this is a killer tune evoking 60s silver tunes, but 
with a heavy dose of amphetamines. <laughs> the drum toms uh, bring in a 16-measure bass and piano ostinato intro over Fry's Latin cymbal work. And the horn melody is kind of an A-B pattern, 16 measures over the Latin feel, and then a switch to furious swinging on the B section that ends a measure early at 15 measures, although the horns hang over onto the, the next like eight measure ostinato transition before it all repeats. This is one we got to hear because it's just really super exciting. From there, we get some alto and trumpet flutters, and then before it's clear that uh, Schenker's going to take it on trumpet, and he's really burning it up on this tune, so we should check out some of that trumpet solo while we're here. Episcopo gets an exciting go on piano next, and the ostinato section returns as a segue into a newly composed horn line section. The horns flutter into an ostinato vamp that gives Frey some time to battle it out around the drum kit before they take it once more through the melody into some final ostinato vamp for the horns to flutter around on. Track 8, Clarity. A short piano intro into this ballad. Schlegel is in on the melody, and nothing does the longing feeling like a trombone. And he really makes it sing out uh, with a nice little touch of vibrato. And so we're going to slow things down a little bit on this piece. Let's hear that longing trombone sound. Mm-hmm. 
making it sing with that tasty little vibrato. Seems like a 21 measure melody in total, and Schlegel continues on into an improvised solo with fine tone and phrasing. Kleiber gets a bass solo on this one too with deep ringing tone, and the melody returns on alto sax this time with rich harmonized horn lines weaving around it to the end. It's a lovely melody and a nice arrangement. Track 9, Peter's Blues, and it says in memoriam of Peter Euchre, and I searched a bit, but I don't know who Peter Euchre was, uh, mm. if he's a famous figure or uh, just a personal uh, dedication. The melody played on trumpet and flute over a loping beat that stops up, uh, has fun syncopation in the rhythm section. It's a kind of Roland Kirk playfulness to it. Uh, it's 16 measures and repeats with the rest of the horns adding in with new lines. There's a new section of more subdued staccato flute and horn lines to a long fall into a bass solo from Kleiber. And then that subdued section is back, but really building up in volume this time into a flute solo. And did I say Roland Kirk? Well, this is a really fiery solo here. We've got to check this out. that one play <laughs> through to <laughs> the end there so Episcopal gets a go on piano after that and getting some stop time before launching out more harmonically and then bringing it back to bluesy things quiet down for the piano to tinkle over walking bass and light and tight drums before all the horns are back with the melody taking a softer repeat to the end the final tune on the recording Zauberwelt the magic world I guess it yeah. starts out with a very interesting drum beat from Fry for eight measures. Bass and piano join in for a modal vamp for eight more. And then soprano and alto sax get the first 32 measure section of the melody. Then the trumpet and trombone are in for another 48 measures. Schenker has a trumpet solo on this one, incorporating some interesting interval lines. And Grob has an animated tenor solo too, with some cool backing horn lines. We haven't heard one of his solos yet, so let's check that out as a final sample on this recording. Thank you. 
with that intro vamp returns into the sax melody. The brass are back sooner this time and then work it to repeating final sections over just the drums. Interestingly, subtracting horns until just the soprano sax is left. I really enjoyed that effect. Too. It kind of reminded drums. me of Haydn, actually. Yeah, <laughs> and it stops mid-phrase for an unexpected ending. Well, while we're here, why don't we uh, just go uh, listen to that ending because it's pretty unique. <laughs> All right, seven colors. It's a full spectrum here. Echoes of great 60s jazz, but it's not nostalgic, rather fresh and invigorating. Fry's original compositions are a lot of fun. The arrangements make full use of the instrumentation and also have little tricks in them to keep you surprised. The moods vary with blazing swing and happy melodies, Latin beats, and some very nice ballad work. Fry's tight and exciting, driving everything on the drums, and all of the soloists are energized and have distinct voices. This one will stimulate your mind and make you feel good at the same time. Yeah, I agree with that too. Now, on the previous album, the, the Michael Weiss, I said there was a lot of variety on it. This one has a lot of variety too, but it's a variety of a surprising kind. Like yeah, it, yeah. Each, each track is really surprising. Uh, there's a hot opening track, and then you have go right into the old-timey, like Here Comes Livio, mm -hmm. and then the waltzing third track, and it just keeps doing that throughout. I really enjoyed the constant surprise of what the next track was going to be right. like. Tambral varieties as well such as the flute. Uh, I really mm. like a, a jazz flute, and there was some good uh, jazz flute playing on this yeah. record, too. I really enjoyed that. Some interesting harmonic writing with the bass leading the upper voices into new chords in Here Comes Livio. There were good, solid compositions, too. I enjoyed the bass solos a lot. They were witty and had personality, so I'd listen to Clarity and Peter's Blues for that. Mm -hmm. And I like the way the instruments dropped out individually at the end of Zalbervelt, as, I, <laughs> as yeah. we, you mentioned, too. Fun. Clever ideas all around, lots of writing, an uplifting listen, and an album that needs to be on CD because I need this on my shelf and it's not available on CD. Oh, man. I'm putting it out there, Elmar Fry. Get this out on a CD. I'll take one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll contact this uh, Privave label and see if we can... Privave, put out a CD of this. This is so this good because it's, it's going to be forgotten. And I, like 10 years from now, I see it on my shelf and I'll listen to it again. Absolutely. You know, I Yeah, I'd that. love to have this one. It's yeah, this is a good one, too. Actually, I wouldn't mind having all three of these. They all sounded great. This was a good jazz week. It was good picks. Yep. Yeah. Overall, it was good, I'd say. But yeah, you know, I liked it all. Whole... It's a good week of music. Lots yeah. of variety. Different time periods in classical. Different countries. We got all different instrumentation. I had a really good time listening this week. Next week, we're going to do that weird thing and listen to Christmas music all week. So. <laughs> <laughs> the picks have been made. They have been made. If you want to get your stockings stuffed 
Well, well <laughs> come over just, to... Or just your streaming uh, going there while yeah. you stock your stuff, your stuff, your stockings. Sorry. Whatever. You come stock over. your stuffing. <laughs> well, what would that look like? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that list will be up a few hours after this on Deezer, so you can come over and uh, check out the playlist for episode 142, and there'll be a link to it on our Facebook page as well, if you can bear to start listening to Christmas music before December starts. But oh, uh, I, I, My date is November 23rd. I know. Yeah. <laughs> we know, I have a special date, because I have too much Christmas right. music to listen to, so there you go. We've got, uh, I think you've got a lot of... Uh, Choral music in I've got all right? vocal. Yeah, and okay. two of them are choral. Uh, right. Although one of them is uh, vocal. I, I got the Lise Davidson mm-hmm. record. Then there's Voices 8, who are just fantastic. I had to do them. And then the, there's um, the Bob Chilcott uh, Christmas Oratorio, which is both vocal and choral. You know, right. which choral is vocal, but there's soloists sure. as well on that one. So I kind of right. mix them all up at the end. So it's all it's going to be a, a vocal Christmas in the right. classical end of this year. Well, I'm going to have some gospel a cappella. That's pretty cool. Do something a little different there. So you there. go for the choral too. Huh? Right. Just one. Yeah. And then we're going to have some uh, instrumental and one that's going to come out on Friday, a kind of tribute to the music of Vince Guaraldi, which we really yeah. love. Yeah. And that's going to have not only Christmas tunes, but some of his, uh, you know, Thanksgiving kind of uh, tunes yeah. and holiday as well. So I want to mention to listeners, um, this year, the uh, Vince Guaraldi's... Um, sort of recordings for the uh, a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving came out. Right. And hearing that, there are a lot of full tracks on it because the uh, Great Pumpkin one was kind of a lot of just music cues, but they still had full tracks. Mm-hmm. But the Thanksgiving one, this was 1973 or so, and the fusion thing was going on. He had some funky grooves. He just yeah. funked up all that Charlie Brown music. It's a really great listen. So I uh, look, yeah, check look for that out. on your streaming. It's really it's really entertaining. Tom Harrell's in on that one, isn't he? He is. He did the, uh, the he plays the yeah. uh, trumpet and he also did the uh, brass arrangements. Right. Yeah, that's a that was a pretty amazing thing to discover too. Yeah, you know, Vince Guaraldi's music just makes everyone happy and. Yeah. You know, it was many people's first time really listening to jazz, maybe to hearing their right. music. So, you know, so we're going to check that out too. That's going to come out on Friday. I'm just going to see if we can get a little preview of it uh, beforehand because I'd like to just have a few relaxed right. listens of it during the week before I uh, get down to taking notes on it. Yeah, I think our generation discovered jazz through the Peanuts specials in kind of a similar way that we discovered classical music through the, mo- the Walt Disney movie Fantasia. So, right. Yeah. All right, well, that's it for episode 141. And we want to say thanks, as always, to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Remember, be sure to check out the Same Difference podcast. There'll be a link to it at the bottom of the description. And also, when we sign off here, you can hear their audio promo. Any last words this evening, Mike? No, just... uh just thinking I'm going to wake up tomorrow and start listening to Christmas music. <laughs> and it's not even December yet. Yeah, I know. Right. But I'm in my my holiday range. I don't know if I want to just go full in to it like this, you know. Yeah, a little right by a little. Yeah, it's a little. Yeah, I like to wade in, but I'm gonna have to dive in because we're doing it early this year. Yep. So we'll be back with our special mm-hmm. seasons greetings episode next week. So until then, keep listening, and we'll see you again next time. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, 
you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.